Good morning, afternoon, or evening, thought evolutionists. Whether you are commuting to or from work, curling up on the couch with your phone to listen to this podcast, or whether you are listening while preparing dinner for your family, it is a gift that you are, wherever you are right now, doing whatever it is you are doing. Time itself is a gift. And I am honored that you have chosen to share some of that gift with me today. Hi, by the way. <laughs> I'm your host, Stefan Dubier, and this is Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. My guest today is Haley. While currently learning whatever she can soak up as an inquisitive student, Haley's ultimate goal is becoming a writer and psychologist one day. She says about herself that she's a deeply flawed person, trying everything in her power to put herself back together a little bit at a time. Her husband's affair was an eye-opener to her in many ways, as it triggered her personal journey towards healing and self-love, a journey that has only just begun. Trauma runs deep in Haley's life, and overcoming the effects of it is a work in progress. Haley calls herself a recovering people pleaser. <laughs> and I will say this, now, I don't know about you, but that is powerful and I love it. Learning that you are actually in charge of your own life is so freeing. Do you remember when you were in your teenage years up to your, I would say early to late 20s? How much of that time in particular did you spend, and be honest now, how much of that time did you spend trying to be liked? Desperately trying to be liked by boyfriends, girlfriends, friends, family, maybe a partner, neighbors, etc. It's a lot. <laughs> I think for me personally, the big awakening came in my early 30s when I realized that I really do not need to make anybody like me. That I did not have to bend in a pretzel to fit somebody else's expectations for my life and for me as a person. I could just be me. That's it. And it is healing, liberating, and simply awesome when you come to that realization. It also makes you do some sad calculations in your head about how much precious lifetime you may have wasted living your life for other people. But in any case, I am so thrilled to hear Haley's story and to learn about her journey. This one is about figuring out how to be true to yourself and how to mend what may seem unmendable at first glance. Her story is all about finding that glue in life that allows you to put yourself back together, broken bit by broken bit. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about HIV AIDS, death, trauma, depression, suicide, body image issues, eating disorders, and mental illness. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Hi, Haley. And thank you for welcoming me into your home. It's a privilege to be here and to hear your deeply personal story. If you could be anywhere but here right now, in time and or space, 
Where would you choose to go and why? Anywhere in time or space. That's a hard one. I imagine maybe just some quiet cabin in the woods somewhere. It doesn't have to be like a different time period. Just just a cabin somewhere where there's a like a river nearby. And I could sit out there and just kind of think and be to myself. <laughs> what does being outside in nature mean to you? It helps me feel grounded and it helps me find my center. When I'm outside, it helps me detach from like everything around me, like my phone, electronics. Like even if I have my phone, I keep it in my pocket because I just like to sit and listen. And it's one of the few places that are quiet enough where I feel like I can really like tune into my like soul or my heart and like hear from myself. So that's why I like it. You said that you are a philosophical and creative person. What sparks your creativity? What is your creative outlet of choice? And what is your life philosophy? Okay, so for the first one, where does where does my creativity come from? So, oh my gosh, that's a hard one to answer. Different things. Uh, sometimes just daydreaming, I'll have ideas come into, into my head about like, oh, I want to mix this thing and this thing. Sometimes it might be a song that inspires something. Sometimes I want to capture a certain feeling or emotion and I'll think about what I want it to be and then I'll envision it and put it together in my head and then I'm like, okay, how do I execute this? So... And I do that like different things like photography, painting, drawing, writing. So any way I can to get it out is how I do it. And then philosophy, that one's hard because I don't have one that I just stick by. It's not like, oh, this is how I live. It's not something simple like, you know, carpe diem, like seize the day. It's more like I'm trying to learn how to start being 100% authentic to myself like 100%, even if that means my truth makes people uncomfortable, me being myself makes people uncomfortable. I've spent my entire life making myself small and not doing it out of caring for people. It's not that I don't care about people and I'm not going to be this bold person who just stops doing that, but making myself small to accommodate everybody else's needs to the point where it was detrimental to me. So for now, my philosophy is just being authentic and being beautiful and being proud of that. So that is awesome because one thing you said to me earlier that clearly stuck with me was the one about you describing yourself as a recovering people pleaser. We will discuss that shortly because I have a feeling that it has been a long road to recovery. But before we get into that, what pleases you? What brings you joy and Tell us something memorable from the last few days or weeks that still resonates and manages to put a smile on your face. Things that make me happy. There's a lot of things that make me happy. Probably the biggest thing is being creative or just, it's not always like the painting and stuff because sometimes even that stresses me out, but it's maybe it's the sharing the process or just sharing that with people that I enjoy. And some people like find that to be like attention seeking. And I'm like, I'm not, I just, if I make something or I discover something or I learn about it, I get so excited. I want to share it. And that makes me happy. So, and then something that brought me joy in the past week or so, I guess two things this weekend, it's silly, but like uh, feeding ducks I, me and my daughter, we go down to uh, falls park a lot and we feed the ducks. And that makes me so happy. They're just, they're so ridiculous. I love it. I love birds. And then we went to the park about a week ago and I was sitting there and she was playing and I got to talk to uh, this mom who was there and learn a little bit about her story. Um, she was from 
like a different country. And just she was talking about how hard she had to work over there to get an education and then coming here to get her PhD. And she was the same age as me. And I was just like, my gosh, like, I don't think we realize how privileged we are to be here in America and how hard other people work to have those opportunities that we just kind of squander. So that was kind of eye opening for me. And I thought about that, like, for a week afterwards, just to be more grateful every day. Now, take us back with you to your childhood. How was life for you growing up? So growing up, my dad passed away when I was uh, four. And a lot of this is stuff that some there's stories my mom has told me now as an adult that have filled out that picture more that I wasn't aware of. At the time, I didn't even know how he had passed. Obviously, life changed after that a good bit. My mom was having to take care of me by herself. And prior to that, she was already, she was the main one working. So to be honest, my relationship was actually closer with my dad at that point. He stayed home. I didn't know at the time, this is something I learned later, he had uh, he had AIDS, he had HIV. So he knew he was going to die. And so he couldn't he couldn't keep a job because he never knew how his health was going to be. So he was taking care of me and she worked a lot. So then I was kind of thrown into like her taking care of me and kind of this weird relationship where I didn't actually really get to see my mom very much because she was like working a lot. And uh, I was going to school and I would come home like after school around age six is when uh, I started like staying by myself, which I think that was like a common thing in the nineties anyway, like the, what the latchkey kids anyway. But I didn't have any other siblings, so I was there by myself from, I guess, like, what, like, one, one till she'd get off work around, like, maybe eight o'clock. And so it was pretty isolating, I guess, for a six-year-old. I watched TV, I'd get my homework done, and she, like, made me promise to not go outside because she was worried if I did, you know, something bad could happen and she wouldn't be there. So I kept my promise to stay inside. And to be honest, like, that kind of led to... Being alone all the time, I ended up, this is a big part of like my story that I haven't really shared with a lot of people. So like, that's why I'm kind of pausing and struggling. When you're that little and you're by yourself all the time and you have all these feelings that at the time I didn't know how to process like grief or that emptiness, like you're, I'm six and I just feel this like emptiness and unsafe and just all this in my body. And so I'm learning at this point how to dissociate with TV and stuff, but I started eating. I started eating like a lot. And so I ended up going from being like a normal sized kid, like at six to being like the size of two and a half kids by the end of the year. So that was kind of like the beginning of what ended up being like a lifelong eating, eating disorder. Between that, like being alone all the time, then doubling in weight, bullying and things like that started happening at school because I was overweight. So I started having kids that were picking on me all the time for that. So you add that into the picture. And then as I got older, like middle school and stuff like that, still kind of being overweight, being picked on, being isolated at home, I would go to family get togethers and I'd have, you know, my aunt, my grandmother who would make comments, you know, like, you really need, do you really think you need like an extra helping of that? Or you need to get some of that, you know, get some of that weight off of you and, you know, trying to show concern. But when you go from, like I said, like you're being bullied at school, you're being bullied by your family, you're isolated all the time, you start to build these ideas about yourself that may or may not be true. But it, it was kind of the beginning of, like this just 
complete and total like self-hatred that I had, to be completely honest. And then having people continue to just treat you like you're worthless all the time because of how you look. So I I also started to kind of wrap this opinion of self-hatred around how I looked and my weight too. So it ended up almost becoming like, um, I'm unlovable because I'm fat or I'm unlovable because of all of these things. And so I started trying my hardest to find other ways to, to be good or to be lovable, whether that was like trying to do things that people, you know, wanted me to do, like be the good kid, get good grades, trying to excel in all the ways that I could since the weight was the one thing that I at that point couldn't change. This is how it is. So I'll find other ways to be lovable or valuable since I I myself am not. I I felt like there's a deficit all the time. Then in middle school, like I did have a few close friends. I was kind of a nerd, so still getting kind of picked on, but I got into like Lord of the Rings and I had a friend at the time then I won't say her name, but seventh grade, she committed suicide. So it was another big loss at that point in my life. And so um, I think when that happened, it also dug up feelings from the loss from my dad that I at that point was too little to process. So I didn't understand grief at that point. So when I lost my friend um, in middle school, there was so much anger, like, it was all this stuff that was compounded that came up between I had people that were asking me, well, did you know that she was going to do that? Did you, you know, did, did she talk to you about it? And I'm of course not. No, like, why didn't I see the signs? So then there was also this self blame too. Like, why didn't I see the signs? How didn't I know she was my best friend? How did I not notice that something was wrong? And people, you know, asking those things. And so come just extra, just shame and more like self-hatred just kind of burring myself underneath it and continued kind of eating to bury some of these feelings and stuff. Well, I should have known. Why didn't I know? Like, So you lose your dad. Your mom is not around because she has to work and she probably has her own grief that she's trying to process in her own ways. And then you lose the one person you can confide in, the one person you can talk to, your best friend. Did Anyone at any point throughout this deeply traumatizing experience for a child, I mean, bullying, body image issues, everything, did anyone try to get you any help, any therapy, anything? I know that um, I spoke with like the school counselor a few times and it was mainly just, you know, are you okay? Or, you know, are you feeling like harming yourself or any of these things. And I mean, at the time, it's kind of just one of those like, "Ah, I'm fine, I'm fine. Like, you don't know how to explain like how you're feeling. And and to be honest, like, the shock of it was numbing. Like, so it's, it's like the initial impact of it with, uh, with loss like that. It's you feel numb for a while, because you just can't process that it's happened. And so no, I, I didn't get like any like professional therapy probably till later on because obviously these kinds of things spiral when they're not dealt with. And from there, like after losing her, I will say probably the first form of uh, creativity that I got into at that point then was writing. Like I started off, I was writing letters to her about like how angry I was or, or how sad I was about what, what had happened uh, or that I didn't understand or that I didn't notice and stuff like that. And like I said, the way I started coping with it since I didn't have like a, a therapist is I started writing a lot. And I remember I filled up like journals worth of just poems and stuff like that to to kind of cope with it and then continue on to high school, still big. And I 
I had started trying to lose weight at that point, but after the loss of that, I put on a lot of weight again. I started, I started binging. Like I, I wouldn't eat at school. I would come home and just binge and binge and binge and binge. It was bearing feelings. And I didn't know that stuff at the time. It was probably around like 11th grade or so when like I started going on the opposite end of the, uh, of an, of the eating disorder spectrum where I had so, so many things being said to me and a lot of self-hatred around the way that I looked. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm associating, I'm unlovable. The way I become lovable is like, I have to lose this weight because nobody likes me because of how I look. I'm fat. The way that I stop being unlovable is I lose this fat. So then I flipped into the other end of it where I started exercising. I went to karate I was like running. I mean, like exercise is healthy, but anything that's taken out of moderation becomes unhealthy. So I was like, I would walk to my karate class. I would do three classes at a time, started walking everywhere and I started to lose weight. And obviously when that happens, you start getting like all these like compliments and stuff. And it's like, oh my God, you look so great. Like you're doing such a great job. Like you, wow. And it's like, my family was like, oh, she's finally getting it. She's getting it. She's like, you know, she's actually like taking care of herself and she seems like she's turned a corner and she's finally doing better and she just gets it. And the worst part of it is like that, that was further from the truth. Like my self-hatred was like the worst it had been at that point. I was still trying to uh, do well in school, but I guess between middle school and high school, there was a lot of anger in the home and a lot of like animosity between me and my mom had kind of built up between our relationship was very rocky. And I mean, some of that was probably from my grief and then just a lot of different things. But so like my senior year of school, everything kind of came to a head. I was at the the height of my eating disorder and it never fell into anorexia because I never got underweight. But I had started getting to a point where I wasn't eating and I would uh, exercise all the time when I was walking and I had lost like a substantial amount of weight and I was feeling good and getting all these compliments and people like, oh my God, you look so great. I like, I can't, you know, you look, you look so great. Like, what are you doing? And a couple of times I looked at people and I was like, I stopped eating and they're like, oh, well keep up the good work. And I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, like, did you hear what I said? Okay. All right. But this is working. I'm like, I'm finally getting... Uh, I'm finally getting like positive attention. Like people are being nice to me and God, it was such a mind fuck. I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss. <laughs> I'm sorry if not. It, it was just, just, a, um, are there any particular takeaways from your childhood that you are still processing to this day? Definitely the people pleasing aspect like that. I very much learned that I learned that I had to earn love and that's not, that's not the truth. That was like the illusion, the trauma, the the narrative I had created for myself was I had to earn love or I had to do stuff to be lovable. The truth is that I'm lovable as I am, not just me, but anybody. Like everybody deserves love, regardless of their story, regardless of what they've done. Now that doesn't mean that it's like unboundary, like sometimes love requires boundaries, but that's the truth of it. Like regardless of our story that that's what we deserve so my my takeaway from my childhood was just having to learn that from the narrative and the the cards i'd been dealt and the things that i had picked up from my surroundings and what i had taught myself i've had to slowly unlearn and so that's this is one of the biggest reasons why i think 
trauma needs to be addressed early in life. Whenever, like, we, so trauma impacts everybody. Like, nobody gets through life without experiencing some form of trauma. But the, the problem is, is that when it happens, we attach meaning to it. And all that is formed off of our beliefs. Like, you know, there's this big aspect that goes into it with the nature versus nurture. So depending on the environment you grow up in, if you've got support, if you don't, if you're isolated, like in my case, you attach meaning to the trauma and you form your beliefs and your ideas about, you know, why these things happened or what it means about you. And so for me, in my case, what I had assigned or what I believed was that I, I felt like to some extent, uh, everybody I met was going to abandon me in some way, shape or form, whether that was physically or emotionally. So that was like kind of subconsciously locked in. And then on top of that, with that, you know, undercurrent running of, of being worried that people were going to abandon me, that kind of stepped up this people pleasing aspect. Well, I've got to figure out other ways to avoid that from happening. So I have these, you know, these two lies that I'm stuck on from my trauma playing constantly. And it's one of those things that I didn't realize or even know I needed to address until later. As a child that believes that everyone you meet is going to abandon you regardless, how did that that belief, that deeply rooted belief for a child, how did that impact the relationships you would have with other people from that point forward? So... It started making this weird dynamic where there were times it felt like I couldn't connect with people who hadn't experienced anything at that point. Like not not to say like, oh, I couldn't connect with people who hadn't had any form of trauma. That's not the case. But it felt like I felt like I couldn't fit in or they didn't understand because there was something different about me. And I also didn't know how to put put my finger on it. I just knew that I was more sensitive. I was, you know, very like hyper aware of uh, other people's sensitivities and their feelings. I was always trying to make sure that, you know, other people felt safe or they felt cared about. And when I saw other people who were sad, it's like I immediately like zoned in on that. And I mean, this is at least one beautiful part of myself is I would see them and be like, oh my gosh, like they're hurting. I know how that feels. I don't want anybody to feel like that. So I had a tendency to kind of be drawn towards like other broken people is not the right word, but other people who are hurting. And unfortunately, usually when people are hurting and you mix all these traumas together, it ends up making this really toxic kind of duo with people uh, when when you're not aware of your your problems or your trauma or your triggers. I don't know if that explains it well enough, but I ended up in more toxic friendships and even like relationships or dating after that point because of this whole dynamic and these these beliefs. Eventually, you met your husband and began building a family together. How did you meet and what was married life like? So we met through some mutual friends that we had. We had a group of friends um, that I was hanging out with uh, after I'd moved out uh, at 17. Me and Dan met probably around, I think it was 19 at the time. And so we hung out a lot and we... Before we got married, we ended up moving into an apartment together and it was it was not in the best side of town. It was like on the bad side of Augusta Road. 
And like we have some pretty wild stories. Like there was a time where somebody set a couch on fire outside of the window and we had to put it out. Like I'm I'm not kidding. Like we joke about that being our time in the hood together. We uh I was working at Panera and he worked for a factory. And then <laughs> I forgot about this too. There was one point where he went out to his car and he got shot at. Like we have some wild stories. I'm not kidding. And during the time, like we were in the apartment there for, I think, three years. I was with him when he lost his dad. This was all while we were dating. We ended up deciding, okay, after the whole gun thing, we were like, we need to get out of here. So we both got different jobs. I ended up working at Verizon for a little bit. And he started working for Charter. And so we made a plan. We're like, we could go ahead and move into another apartment or we could start uh, saving up our money and stay here because the rent was really low and we could start saving up for a house and we could just stay for one more year. So we're like, okay, that's what we'll do. We're going to save up our money, pay, you know, pay what we need to save all the rest and we'll start looking for houses. And that's what we did. So then after a year, we moved into where we're at now in Greer, and we got married the year after that. So we had already been on quite a couple of adventures prior to getting married and been through quite a lot together before that. Married life was, so it was, it was different. Like we were finally kind of in a safer place than we had been. And to be honest, I think both of us probably for the first time we're safe enough that we started processing a lot of the stuff we'd been through. And I kind of think that that was the beginning of things getting a little bit rocky, to be honest. Like when you finally get to a place where you're safe and you're not in fight or flight anymore, you finally have a lot of time to process things you couldn't before. When and how did you find out that he was having an affair? What did that do to you, your world, your self-esteem, and your little family. Before the affair part, um, I had found out that I was going to be having Elena and um, went through the process of, you know, caring, being pregnant, having the baby and stuff like that. So we get home with her and like, I'm still settling into the whole like being a mom thing and you have all these emotions and I'm like crying and holding her and I can't imagine a more like beautiful, precious thing. Well, the same week he gets a call that his stepdad has had a stroke. So off he goes, he's at the hospital with his mom and I am by myself with our kid processing this. And this is after having a cesarean too. And I was just like, I'm holding her trying to process all of this by myself and handle it alone while he's, you know, taking care of that. And I just, I don't know how to explain it. I had like this feeling that just kind of came over me that was like, this is the beginning of the end of my marriage. Like, and that that was just like a thought that just came to me. And I was like, oh, we're not going to worry about that. Like, let's focus on this for now. But it, it was the truth. That was like the beginning and the end. So that was in 2017. And then I got the news of the affair. I think it was January like the end of the year of 2018. And he he told me himself, but there were, there was all these different things that I was noticing. And I mean, I was even pointing those things out to him and it would just kind of be like, no, you know, nothing's going on. It's not that, you know, it's just in your head, gaslighting, to, to be fair, just flat out. And okay, but I'd keep pointing out things. And eventually it just got to a point where like I had this feeling, but I didn't have enough proof. So I would look him dead in the eye and say, you can lie to me and you can lie to yourself, but you can't lie to God. That's kind of what I started saying. And I would just see <laughs> the color leave his face. And that's how I started dealing with it. I was kind of already grieving up to that point when he finally sat down and told me. And 
to my understanding, it wasn't like this ongoing thing where it was like swept up in love. It was like this, this one night kind of thing, but it was who it was with that like crushed me. It come to find out it had been <laughs> my friend at the time that it had happened with. So he tells me that I'm sitting there and the, the feeling of numbness that I have got, had gotten so familiar with came washing over me just used to that when when the shock hits the loss numb immediately and I'm like you need to leave you you need to leave now and so that was kind of like the you know the start of of all of that um if I'm honest it crushed me this wasn't the first big like this was the first like massive betrayal there had been like I said there were other red flags and things that had happened but finding out like it was my friend and stuff like that like it absolutely, it crushed me. It, it felt like I had spent so much time when I finally got away from like, you know, 17 year old me, the dream at that time, after finally getting out of like my house, like my childhood house was that one day I wanted to have a family where it was solid. Like I wanted a solid foundation and a family where it wasn't broken more or less like that was it like that was the dream and so it was grieving that loss again it was like it to be completely honest it felt like I can't have anything good like every time I try and reach for something it felt like I couldn't have it so it hurt to be fair like it really honestly hurt it was like I literally the only thing that I wanted in this life was to have a family to feel safe and loved and that it's like I am not allowed to have that So I had to grieve that. And to be honest, like at the time I was a Christian and I'm I'm not an atheist. I still believe in God, but like I, that also calls this huge spiral in my faith and stuff. Just the, me being pissed at God, like you gave me this hand in life. I've done everything I can. I have worked my ass off to try to make something beautiful out of, out of the life I've had. And it gets taken away from me what have I done? Like, why, why don't you love me? Like, why am I not allowed to be loved? And just all of this that came up that I had to start working through. So the picture that you have had in your mind, almost like a salvation from your problems, the picture of that perfect family that you've wanted more than anything falls apart. And you are mad at God, you're mad at yourself you're mad at your husband you're mad at the world what did that do to your spiritual journey so during that time it it had it completely crushed me what was so hard is that when i started trying to seek help from like the church that i was going to and and some of the church people during that time i was thinking that i would have gotten a bit more comfort or help or encouragement. And for the first week or two, I had a few people that checked in on me and then it just kind of was radio silent. And so I'm left dealing with all of this and the the, the fallout and the spiral of it and feeling isolated again. And that made me feel even more angry. And a, a lot of, a lot of things that I started getting was, oh, well, we'll, we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. And to be completely honest, I, got so furious with just the whole faith and religion aspect of it because I 
I had for years already been upset when bad things happen and people would say, oh, well, we'll pray for you because what good is that if you're not going to actually, if there's something you can do, if there's something practical that can be done, then why aren't you getting to it? Like, even if it's sitting with somebody or bringing meals or like sitting and talking to them, I was, I was so hurt by, by that experience. And the other thing too, is on, on one side of it, I had a lot of people from like from the faith side saying, well, you need to work it out. God hates divorce. And so, so I started to think, I don't want to be a part of this faith or a part of this religion anymore. If, you know, if that's how it's, if that's how, how they think. So that kind of led me to going off and trying to understand and discover God for myself, different from the religion I grew up with, like different from Christianity. And the God that I actually met or found during that time was far different from what I had grown up being taught he was like. And once again, you're isolated. And religion doesn't seem to be something that you can really turn to, at least not the religion that you knew beforehand. So where did you turn to? Were there friends or other people that gave you valuable advice in a situation like that? I can't say like, oh, nobody cared and nobody was there. But the problem is that there was all these different opinions and advice from different sides because everybody wanted to weigh in with their opinion based off of either their experience or what they think they would have done in my shoes. And I had things from all sides, like people saying things like, well, what did you do wrong? Like, what what did you do to cause this? Or did you try losing weight? Were you spicing things up in the bedroom? As some of my guy friends, oh, well, was she hot? Was she hot? Just absolutely idiotic things like that. Like that can so stop or fix an issue like that. When When stuff like this happens, you have to look at the whole thing. It's not just about the bedroom. So between that and then the religious aspect of, well, you need to fix it. This is what God would want. I feel I felt torn and I really think that was probably the beginning of my like screw it era. It was like, you know what? It doesn't matter what I do, how I live my life, what choice I make from here, everybody's gonna have an opinion and they're not gonna like what I have to do, or they're not gonna like what I do or what choices I make. So I'm just gonna figure out what I wanna do. And that's that's kind of the beginning of it. That's where I decided that, okay, this is my life. My one life that I get to live, what do I want to do with it from here? According to the Institute for Family Studies, about 20% of married men and 13% of married women report having cheated on their spouse. Now, clearly, that number may or may not accurately reflect reality, as those asked may not have been completely truthful in their answers. In any case, infidelity is a reality in many marriages. Did you end things with him? And how did you heal from the wounds of that deeply desired picture of the family you so desperately wanted falling apart? So we we did separate uh, to begin with. Like we had separated and the the plan was to divorce. And I won't put things lightly, it was incredibly messy. And I mean, I'll even add the fact that like I had like dated somebody for like a short period of time while we were separated. Well, not dated, but I had I had talked to somebody, which made things even more messed up. But it all led back to kind of more of this awakening in me. 
after the fact that the person that I had been interested in, it was, I realized that they had similar traits and I finally was picking up on the pattern. It was like, I keep attracting or being attracted to similar types of people and I keep continuing this cycle and I'm sick of it. I am, I'm sick of being attracted to the same kinds of people. And I was like, so, you know, hard stop, Haley, it's time to really take a hard look at yourself and figure out what about you keeps being pulled to those kinds of relationships and people like we, we had, I had already started trying to do some healing work, um, was already like deeply looking at my relationship as a mom now with my own daughter and how it kind of mirrored my mom. But so to answer your question, we had separated. I, so you asked how, how did I heal from the wounds? So first it was that realization, Hey, we're doing another pattern. This has got to stop. So I had to start taking a really, really, really hard look at myself. And I needed to look at like what family was and did it have to be like it, I realized it was grieving the expectation or the idea of a family I had put on a pedestal. And I had to realize that families come in all shapes and sizes. Family is not always blood. Sometimes family is like, it's your friends. It's the people you you meet. It's the people you impact. It can be your pets. Um, it can be just like, you know, you and your child. So I had to first grieve the idea of what I thought family was supposed to be. And I realized that idea came from six-year-old me who didn't have that. So I was trying to live out this dream for her. So then next, after all this had happened, here I am, adult me, feeling like I'm back at being a six-year-old again with like, you know, the loss of the father figure. But this time it was the husband. And now it was more like I was in the role of my mom. Like the loss, I have a kid to take care of trying to figure all this out, not the best support network or system. And it was almost like a, a mirror of, like I said, me, me being, it was like, I, it was my life, but it was almost like I was mirroring what had happened with my mom to see if I was going to do it differently. And to me, maybe this all happened for one to break off some generational stuff like that's happened through the family. Like maybe part of it was that I needed to be a pattern breaker. I was going to be the one that would acknowledge and say, okay, I'm doing it differently. I'm rewriting the script. It's my story and I'm going to do it the way that I want. So part of the healing started off with sitting with that, grieving the loss of the idea and I started digging into inner child work, shadow work, very like Jungian psychology. So, and I kind of stepped away from the Christian faith or the religion, so to speak, and kind of touched more into the spiritual spirituality aspect of it, where I started sitting and really actually trying to get to know me and first going back to my childhood and figuring out what made me who I am, why I was doing the things that I was doing, being aware of those things. And then I had to start figuring out, okay, well, how the heck do I break these patterns now? Because just having that self-awareness isn't enough to change it. You can be like, oh yeah, okay. Like I keep people pleasing or, oh yeah, I keep trying to you know, do this to make people like, you know, appreciate me or like me or, oh, I like making people happy, but am I not expressing how I really feel sometimes so that they feel heard and seen? But what about me? How do I fit into the equation? So that's part of what kept 
that's part of what kept getting me into these like one-sided relationships. And I had to start really, I had to finally be okay with being alone and isolated so I could really get to know myself and start to love that person so that I could start feeling like, okay, well now that now I'm going to start coming back out into the world as this version of me that holds space for others, but for myself, like I, I no longer need to keep shrinking or being small to accommodate other people. Like I am allowed to speak what I need to my truth, my opinions, Uh, my values, be my authentic self and however they handle it, what they think about me, how they react, that's on them. That's not my responsibility. If they get upset, they get upset. Like I can have boundaries where if they get upset and they're irrational, I can be like, okay, cool. Like I can walk away from this. I don't have to have a relationship with you. Like I have that freedom now. It's like, I don't, now that I'm not feeling like I have to live off of scraps of love from people to obtain worth, I know that I can walk away from like any relationship now, friendships, family, relationships, like that, that's the freedom of it. Like I learned that I grew up isolated. I got put back in a situation when I was isolated. I had to really look at myself and love that person and be like, we've got us no matter what happens. So I built a home in me. So now when I start coming back out again to, to test the waters with people, I know no matter what, I can walk away from those situations and I'm going to be fine. An extremely powerful realization, I will say. Now, you then made the decision to give your husband another chance. What were your requirements when that happened to preserve yourself in this marriage and your newfound realization that you matter and that self-love matters and that you are a vital part of that marriage. What did you require for him to change since he was the one who cheated on you and broke your heart and destroyed this picture of a family that maybe was not really attainable at the time, but that you nevertheless had and that he was very much aware of? For starters, we came back together during the pandemic to help because the financial aspect of everything, like we were struggling And we were trying to, we both agreed we wanted something stable for our kid. And being separated with the uncertainty of the situation in the world at that time, it was kind of one of those things like an agreement, okay, we're going to, we're going to at least live together and we'll figure out how this goes from here. Because one of the things that I had to realize too, is that just because I might've had this idea of how I wanted a marriage or a relationship or our family to be, that doesn't necessarily mean that he had the same picture. That happens, I think, in relationships all the time. Like we have ideas or expectations that the other person isn't aware of. And sometimes we just assume that they have the same idea as us without us ever sitting down and having those kinds of conversations, which is, first of all, say if you're going to get in a relationship of any kind, like you need to have those conversations and, and make sure everybody is like on the same page, because I feel like that's why a lot of a lot of relationships fail to begin with. We were agreeing to, like I said, be in the same house together, but I wouldn't say that we were necessarily like working on the relationship. We were kind of doing our own things in the same home and trying to kind of like help take care of Elena. And I wish I could say like that whole process was like seamless and beautiful, but like it wasn't like there were still times where like we would argue about stuff. But in the process of it, what I started learning was how to like speak up about things before that I might have not spoken up about or 
So before I, if I was upset about stuff, I would hold it in for a long period of time and then it might just come out as like a big explosion and then people would be like, whoa, where did that come from? And I mean, understandably, I didn't know how to process or deal with those feelings. So the the process of us getting back together and me having to really sit down and get to know myself meant if I was getting upset or frustrated about something or I wasn't okay with something, instead of me just stewing on it, I would immediately just be like, you know, like, hey, this isn't this isn't cool. Like this is this is what I don't want happening. And either, you know, we agree on this or we we need to figure out a way to compromise. And to be honest, in the beginning, that was rocky, because if that's something he wasn't used to me being or doing, a lot of times it was met with passive aggression to be honest. And so like, like I said, I, I wish I could say like, oh, this coming back together is just this beautiful thing. And we had all this time to think and we we're like, oh, we love each other. And we're going to make this work. It wasn't it was messy and it was ugly. And it took a lot of give and take on both ends. And it kind of showed some of the darker sides, I guess, of both of us. But the beauty in that I will say, because I know some people like, oh, that sounds like absolutely awful. It can be if we kept staying with that side of ourselves, but we kept learning and growing through it and we kept sticking it out and we kept talking. And that was the big thing. It was, it was talking. And as each of us spent more time by ourselves, kind of getting to, to know ourselves better, we better understood how we felt or what we thought. And then we could come back together and talk. And that's been like a big thing too. Even now it's like, if we're getting upset one of the things we've learned, like if if you're in an argument and one person's more heated than the other, if you start feeding into that fire, you're both in like your your brain's kind of hijacked. You're you're in the your lizard brain is what I like to call it. You're in fight or flight or freeze. So when one person is like that, the best thing that you can do is to kind of hold space for them. Like, and it doesn't mean that how you're feeling isn't inv- like it's not valid, but you hold space for them. You let them like get that out till they kind of regulate themselves. And then, you know, at that point you can speak about like your side of it. And if you're both getting heated, you need to walk away and regulate yourselves and then come back and speak about it. Cause when you're in fight, fight or flight, like it does, you can't, you can't logic with that. Your logic, the part of your brain, it's offline. So that was one of the biggest things us learning is like when we got like that to walk away, come back and talk or us having to hold space for the other. So we could talk about the things and the deep hurts and even the things that like, I had done that hurt him because I don't want to paint it out like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. Like there were things obviously with like my people pleasing and trying to be from, I was always trying to be like this picture perfect type person. So there was an element of like being overcritical. Like, like I said, there's just different things we had to start sitting there and holding space for, for each other. And him speaking about the things that I had done that were hurtful and us working through them or, you know, taking accountability to like, you know, and not be like, well, if that hurt your feelings, that didn't mean that you sit down and you say things like, I'm sorry, that hurt your feelings. That was not my intent, but that hurt you. And then you work through it. And then it's those kinds of processes where you come together and you really, really face those ugly things about yourself and the other person, even if it wasn't your intention, where the healing starts to take place. So we're finally at a point now where things are looking up. I think it's a very special thing that you're doing, seeing each other, learning about each other, trying to 
fully understand who you really are as people. And that might actually be the key to you saving y'all's marriage. So kudos to you for that, definitely. Now, you still call yourself a deeply flawed person. And I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but we are all flawed, every single one of us. Some people are just better at pretending than others. Now, flaws aside, because they don't really matter because we're all flawed, they don't make us special. (laughs) But what would you say is something truly special, unique, and beautiful about you? Okay, so what what do I think makes me unique? I think it's a combination of being willing to look at myself, like the good, the bad, and the ugly, to start discerning, you know, what pieces I don't want to keep and, and what pieces I do, and just deciding little by little that I'm going to make the best that I can out of what I have, like little piece by piece, I'm going to rebuild who I want to be, and that... I guess the other thing I think that probably makes me unique or special is the fact that despite everything that's happened with the the healing that I'm working on doing, I found ways to be grateful, not that it happened or what happened, but for the lessons I've learned from those things and that I'm learning how to not abandon myself anymore. And I'm hoping that if nothing else, maybe I can start teaching other people how to not abandon themselves by being myself and you know, by, by talking about my journey and who, you know, who I, who I am now, who I've become, who I'm becoming. If you had the chance to speak to six-year-old Haley right now, what would be your words of wisdom, caution, advice? What would you say to her? I wouldn't give her wisdom or advice or caution. I would hug her because that's what she wanted and needed. I would take her into my arms and I would hug her and I would tell her that she is loved and that home isn't something that you find. It's something you build and you can build it any way you want and you can always add or take things away. Now, let me spin that question a little bit and instead of the past, look into the future. If we had a crystal ball to predict the future for Haley, where do you currently think you would see yourself in five or 10 years? And where would you love to see yourself in five or 10 years? And what do you think it is going to take for you to get there? So where do I see myself in five or 10 years? That's a good question. I feel like there's hundreds of different outcomes and there's hundreds of different things that I want to do and and try. So... I wish I could tell you that I I know where I see myself. I I don't. I don't. I'm not going to keep building up these ideas of how I want my future to be. There's things I want to do. I, I want to write a book. I'm working on that. I've got a couple of children's books in mind. So those are things I want to do, some goals. Ideally, I would love to either be a, a life coach or a therapist in the future. So, you know, if I continue my degree, but I may not. So I think, where do I see myself in five or 10 years from now? Just being myself, pursuing things that make me feel passionate and that I'm interested in and just kind of seeing where life goes instead of having this like finish line, because that's, that's part of, you know, I think that's part of my journey is just, just living and experiencing it as life is now instead of having an outcome. One thing I'm trying to do with this podcast is build a community of people who 
carry each other through the storms, who inspire, evolve, listen to, and learn from each other. Haley, who inspires you, and who do you believe you might be able to inspire with your journey? Okay, these are at least some of the people that have like helped on like the self-healing journey that have been an inspiration. So uh, there's her name's Christina Lopes. Like I've followed her on YouTube for a while. She's the heart alchemist. So she does a lot of like spiritual healing. So that's been like one thing that's been an inspiration for me. And I kind of look up to that. I'm like, oh man, hopefully one day I can be somebody like that. A lot of like Thich Nhat Hanh books, like Buddhism, stuff like that. So those have been like my inspirations to to self-healing and to just keep being a better person and how to handle suffering. And then who might I be able to inspire? Um, I don't know. Anybody who who's learning to love themselves, who's learning to uh, stop people pleasing and who's deciding that they want to live their life for themselves, not like in a selfish, narcissistic way, but they just they finally realize that their life is theirs to live and they have to follow their passions, damned the consequences. So I guess those people, those are my people. What do you think anyone out there listening right now should do today to reclaim full ownership of their lives, their choices, and their own happiness? Okay, so I'm going to start with one thing. You're saying to reclaim. Well, first you have to realize if you're unhappy, if, if something you're doing, if you're around people that make you feel like you're small or that you're not appreciated, like you have to acknowledge that first to reclaim it. And then you have to, you have to figure out why, well, why does, why am I unhappy? Is it, is it my expectations are too high or do these people just genuinely not accept this part of me? Is, is this part of me something that is actually interest? Like, is this part of me something that could use improvement? Cause like, I will say like constructive criticism is valid is this constructive criticism or is this criticism that, you know, attacks me as a person, like fundamentally, like who I am or what I, what I value. Once you have thought about those kinds of things, the way you reclaim your power is that you start either changing, like you change your environment. You might have to cut people off. Like if they, you know, aren't helpful, if it's not constructive criticism, um, you may have to cut people off. You may have to put up more boundaries. Like, if you have a parent and you talk to them or you call them and all they do is like complain about something, you might have to say like, look, I love you, but I was calling to talk about this. I don't have 20 minutes like right now. Uh, we can talk about this at a different time. It's you have to start figuring out who you want to be and how you want to show up. And the only way you reclaim that is by that. You have to figure out who you want to be and how you want to show up and and the things that make you uncomfortable and how do you change those things. And like I said, that sometimes that's cutting people off. Sometimes it's showing up differently. And sometimes it might actually be changing parts of yourself. That's not a bad thing either. Sometimes it's necessary. Haley, it has been a wonderful experience talking to you. Thank you so very much for being you, for being brave, for being willing to evolve. If our listeners have questions for you, would you consider returning to speak to me again? Sure, I would be glad to. It would blow my mind if anybody would even want to like ask a question. What a cool, strong, and inspiring woman Haley is. One thing I forgot to mention earlier is that she's using a lot of her newfound powers for the good of others. I think it always deserves the greatest respect when those who know pain so very well are first to try and ease the pain of others. 
Haley is a certified life coach in emotional intelligence, and I think we could all use more of that. Emotional intelligence. Normally, I close out my podcast by telling you to be kind to each other, and of course you should still live by that principle. But it's equally important that you are kind to yourself. After all, the one person you are going to spend your entire life with, every single second of it, is you. Loving yourself is not just a catchy thing to say. It is crucial for your own happiness and survival. So the next time you catch yourself angry or mad because of a mistake you've made, or because of how you think you should have handled a situation, remind yourself that you are flawed, that we are all flawed and broken in one way or another, and that that is completely normal and okay. That you are completely normal and okay. We can be so brutal and unforgiving when it comes to ourselves. Can we please stop and embrace the flawed, imperfect people we are? Like Haley said, all she ever wanted was that hug that she would give herself if she had the chance to. Now, I would like to start a little project that I want you to be a part of if you're willing to. I would love to read letters you write to yourselves. Yes, you heard me correctly. So. If you are okay with me sharing something so intimate with our audience, please email me what is hopefully a love letter to yourself. I would be honored to share some of those in one of our upcoming shows. The email address is info at thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is info at thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Please also send us your questions for Haley and fill out our intake form Uh, that you can find on our website if you want to be on this show and talk about your own journey. To get in touch with us and learn much more about Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds, check out thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. You may also leave questions for Haley by calling our virtual voicemail number at 864-501-5033. Again, that is 864-501-5033. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook or Instagram by searching for Thoughtvolution and rate, review, and share our podcast. It means the world to me if you could spread the word so that many, many, many others can learn from our guests like Haley, Jennifer, Dustin, Don, Donnie, Neriman, Anna, Deb, and all the others you will soon meet. Thank you. Time for me to wish you a day or night full of love, including self-love. Be a thoughtvolutionist and take good care of yourself. I love y'all and I will see you next week.